0: With your Bibles open to Colossians 3, we're going to read together uh, verses 1 through 16. I'll read it aloud. Colossians 3, let's stand together in honor of God and his word. Starting in verse 1, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's a lot there. We just read one chapter, and and we could spend weeks or months or years, if, if you're another pastor here, but we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to just spend time on one verse. If, if I was able to go through chapter 1 and 2, we, you would be able to see the love that God had for the Colossian believers. He was writing to the church there, even specifically individual believers in that city. He did not plant that church, but rather there was a group of believers that had started a church. Epaphras was their pastor. And so Paul had heard of their faith in the gospel, and he was encouraged by that. He loved them. He was hearing that they were bearing fruit in their understanding of God's grace in their lives. But he had some concerns. He he would love to have gone and visited them in person, but he was not able to do that. And so he wrote this letter sharing his love for them, his words of encouragement, and also the concerns that he had. He wanted to remind them of, of the hope and joy that they have in Christ. He was concerned about the influence that false teachers were having who were coming into the church, who were coming into their settings and teaching them words of God that were not right, that were not the true word of Christ. They were advocating things such as worship of angels, spiritual and religious rituals and practices as though to earn a false sense of righteousness or standing before God. And so for this reason, Paul desired to write this letter. And in chapters 1 and 2, you'll see right off after he encourages them of, of hearing of their faith and their love for the gospel, he encourages them to stand firm in their faith. And he goes right away demonstrating how they need to be rooted and grounded in the person Of Jesus Christ, starting in verse thirteen, I just want to highlight the the emphasis that he that he makes as he writes this to them. Starting in verse thirteen, notice I'll I'll use a different uh, proper noun here. But in verse thirteen, as it says, He Jesus Christ, verse thirteen, has delivered us, or God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son Jesus. In whom, Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, Jesus, and for him, Jesus. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, Jesus, all things hold together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He, Jesus, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he, Jesus, might be preeminent. For in him, Jesus, it pleased, or the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his Jesus cross. You see the emphasis there? Paul's not just choosing words out of the air. He is being so intentional on reminding and encouraging, instructing the Colossian believers, hey, your faith is rooted and grounded in the, in the work and person of Jesus Christ alone, the one who, who created all things, the one who holds all things together, the one in whom God's fullness was pleased to dwell The one who who reconciled you to himself by dying on the cross for your sins. This is the Jesus that your faith is to be rooted and grounded in. So if we had time, we would spend some time looking at that this morning. But I want want us to look at verse 16 as we could see how reasonable and logical it would be for us if we see how the work of Christ causes us... to be indwelt by, the, by his word and to live lives of holiness before him, it should cause us to desire that in our lives. And so as we spend our time at verse 16, I'm hopeful that not only will we memorize this verse in our study this morning, but that we will desire to live lives of holiness before God, recognizing that it is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. How many of you have heard that verse before? Anybody? Oh, good. Anybody ever memorized that verse before? All right, good. It's a great verse to know, but not just for knowledge's sake, but so that we could apply it to our lives. And so hopefully this morning... We'll put some meat on that memorization. Uh, the three things that we'll see this morning as we break down this verse are simply by the statements. First, we will see the, the supremacy of the indwelling word of Christ. Secondly, we'll see the, the sufficiency of the indwelling word. And finally, if I make the time, we'll see the symphony that comes from the indwelling word of Christ. And so let's, let's first look at the first part of verse 16 and the supremacy of, of the indwelling word, the supremacy of the indwelling word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We just break that verse down for you. Um, the word of Christ. This is the only place that this particular phrase is used. There, there are some that might be used in other passages like Romans 10, but this is the only one that talks specifically referring to, to God's word. Other times it's used, it uses the word of God or the word of the Lord. And so it's, uh, in this case, referring to the direct communication that God has given man through Jesus' teaching, so he may know God and his will. In short, it is simply a reference to the Bible, God's word, the scriptures, the teachings of Jesus. It parallels the phrase in the verse before where it says, "...the peace of Christ that is to rule in your hearts." It's an emphasis for the Colossian believers there to not only know the peace of Christ, but also to know and dwell in the word of Christ. You see, the supremacy of Christ, putting Christ in his right place in our understanding of the gospel, it corrects the false teaching that was occurring in the setting of of this book, of this letter. As I already said in chapter 1 and 2, Paul is reviewing the doctrine that, that was so well explained and taught in that early church. And he was talking about the new life that they have been given in Christ and that through Christ they have this life. In the verses we read in the context of chapter 3, we see the the back and forth of the old self and the new self, the new man and the old man. And oftentimes when I, when I use that term new, new man or old man, usually I only use the term old man when I'm talking about... The term of endearment for the staff guy in our office. Everybody can think of the old man in our office. But here, the uh, the concept there is, is to put off the old man, the sinful man of our former unbelieving lives. Before we knew the gospel, and before we we placed our faith and trust in Christ for salvation, we need to put away those practices as the new man. As verse 9 says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Many times as believers, we we seek to do the good things or, or to pursue the right things, but at the same time, we're not putting off the old things that entangle us, that entrap us, that drag us down. Or, or maybe it's the other way around where you... You make the conscious decision that you'll say, well, I'm going to, to not do those things. I'm going to put aside the slander and the covetousness and, and these things that are idols of my heart. But we, we forget or we neglect to put on the new things of, of a life that is indwelt by the Spirit, and quickly we fail, quickly we find ourselves unable to dwell richly. And so that is why the supremacy of Christ is so important, recognizing that it is in the person of Jesus Christ alone and his word that we can find joy and hope and the ability to stand firm. The term dwell there, let the word of Christ dwell. It's the term for to reside within or to be at home with. I can kind of see the Uh, By way of illustration, you know, if you've ever been to the farmhouse, it's a real nice older home, carpeting upstairs. And on those winter days when you open up the vent, the gush of hot air comes through and it's warm and toasty. So you kind of feel like you're in your home maybe upstairs with the heater running full blast. So I'll often take my shoes off, be at home. But, you know, there's there's nothing like going home at the end of a day or at the end of an evening, and opening the door and hearing my, my two-year-old and four-year-old say, Daddy, and run to me and give me hugs. Other than, other than Daniel, who does that when I go to the farmhouse, I just don't get that in my office. And the same perhaps could be true here, is that as we, as we seek to, to dwell in the word of Christ, as we t- seek to allow the, the Bible to, to make itself at home within our heart and our minds and our life, It should be that kind of a a feeling that we have. It is to live in us in such a way that we can live it out in what we think and what we say, even in our our disposition before others. It's like in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And so you must abide in me to have life. We are to abide in him and his word is to abide in us if we are to prove that we are his disciples. Similarly, David expresses in Psalm 119 when he explained that the way to live a life that is pure is to hide God's word in our hearts that we might not sin against God. We need to allow the word of Christ to dwell in us, to be make, make itself at home in our lives, in our hearts. Then the last word there, richly, Paul adds that adverb to describe the degree to which this should occur in the life of a believer. It is to be with us in in abundance, to the point of of overflowing. It's one thing to, to memorize the Romans road or to know John 3, 16 and maybe 17 and 18 if you're overachiever, but it's another thing to allow God's word to dwell in us in such a way that when life squeezes us, When trial comes, when challenge faces us, the word dwells in us in abundance so that we could stand firm, so that we could know where our hope, where our joy lies in the person of Christ alone. The word of Christ should direct every thought, every decision that we make. We should be striving to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10 tells us. We do that so that our decisions that we make can bring glory to God. Can bring glory to God. So, why do we exist? Why are you here this morning? And I don't mean here in the theater at Five Points. I mean, why are we in existence? We exist to bring glory to God, to reflect His glory to the world around us. And how can we do that if we are not allowing God's Word, the Word of Christ, to dwell in us? In us richly, in abundance. I'm thankful for for a church such as ours. I'm thankful for God's grace in bringing people to this church who love God, who love His Word. It's a blessing to see individuals and men and women, families, young people who desire to know their Bibles, who desire to strive to live lives of holiness. But i I would be foolish to think that there are there are some. I'd be foolish to think that there's some here who have been in the church for years, for decades, even perhaps, and yet they, beyond knowing where the books are, or the Bible, maybe knowing what the names of the books are, don't know God's Word. haven't Haven't taken the time to learn, whether out of ignorance, whether out of no one has done that for you. Maybe the verses that you have memorized from when you were a child till now are, are minimal. Maybe you have a hard time finding passages of Scripture as we turn to them for our times of reading. We're thankful for technology, but sometimes it does cripple us in knowing how to find passages in God's Word. There comes a place where ignorance is not, no longer bliss, but rather it becomes an act of passive rebellion against not desiring to know God's word. And so I would love for one here who maybe is in that place that does not know God's word that that perhaps you've placed your faith and trust in Christ for salvation but beyond that you you stand here sit there this morning and say, wow, the word of Christ is not dwelling richly in my heart, in my mind, in my life. I don't even know where to begin. What's my point? I I would love for you to love the truth. How can I do that? We have many ways that we would love that we would love to help you grow in your understanding of the gospel of Christ, of the word of Christ. We have Bible studies that happen all throughout the week. Men and women who would love to sit down with you in a small group setting, in a one-on-one setting, discipleship groups. We have Monday night classes, classes sound sometimes fearful. Opportunities for sharpening and growing in your faith on Monday nights. Systematic theology, who is God? Soul care, how can I care for the person sitting next to me? How can I interpret God's word for myself, hermeneutics? We'd love to spend time with you teaching you those things so that you can allow God's word to dwell in you richly. Do you love the truth? Do you desire to know God's word, the word of Christ, and have it dwell in you richly? If you do, these are some ways that you can do that. Sunday mornings cannot be the only times that you are thinking and dwelling about the word of Christ. Don't allow the distractions of the world to keep you from learning the word and gaining its riches. The supremacy of the indwelling word. Loving the truth. That brings us to our second, our second point that we see of this statement. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. We see, number two, the sufficiency of the indwelling word. The sufficiency. Not only is Christ to be supreme and his word to be what. We consider as we make decisions, as we think about how we speak, but also we should know that it is sufficient for all that we need. Before I, I'll break down this verse as well, but I want to take that last word of the statement first, that word wisdom. Because we'll understand what teaching and admonishing are one another, but that that word wisdom, I think, is a key word here. Because anyone can teach and anyone can admonish towards things, but if it's not done in wisdom and an understanding of right thinking, it sometimes is pointless. Wisdom is the ability to take knowledge and apply it to life. There are many people who suffer from having a lot of knowledge, but without wisdom. Anybody know people like that? A lot filled with knowledge, but don't know how to tie their shoes? (laughs) Maybe not. The Lord wants us to take that knowledge that we gain from his word and apply it to our lives. But not only to our life, but also to the lives of those around us, those that we love and care for, those that God has called us to come alongside, the body of Christ. It's the third point in the Great Commission, right? Go and baptize all nations, teaching them to observe the things I have commanded you. We have to be teaching them. We have to have wisdom in knowing how to help those understand God's word teaching. Teaching is the word from which we get didactic. You've heard that didactic teaching, it's a um, educational word, giving of instruction, the, uh, the giving of facts and their relationship to each other, how they exist. It's the positive side of imparting truth, simply facts and data. Here it is, here's the right answer. We pass on to others the knowledge that we gain from learning from our own study and also from gleaning truth in others. The second word there is admonishing. And it has, has the root meaning of to put in our mind. So not only just to teach, instructing on what is right, but also to look at the instruction from the negative side, the, the what is wrong. It's the negative side of pointing things out, giving a warning about things. It's the, same, it's the same phrase or, or words that are used at the beginning of chapter, or end of chapter one, when, when Paul writes, um, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. The, the purpose statement of our church is taken from that verse where it says, we, are, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and prepare God's people to worship him forever. Our goal is, the goal of Bethany Community Church is to proclaim every, every believer perfect in Christ Jesus, every man. And that was Paul's goal as well, in admonishing and teaching every man with all wisdom. We know that Scripture was written down. The reason that we have God's Word in front of us, it was written down for our instruction, Romans 15 tells us. We know that Paul labored in teaching wherever he went. His missionary journeys, many of the places he went, 1 Corinthians 4 tells us he was always teaching. While we recognize that there are certain gifted men that God has given to the church to teach and instruct elders, pastors, and teachers, it is also the responsibility to all those within the church to come alongside other believers and to teach them and admonish them, to warn them. Romans 15, 4 says, Paul told the Romans he had confidence in them that because they were full of goodness and knowledge, they would be able to admonish one another. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he writes, For the believers are able to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with all men. As believers, as part of the body of Christ, we have the privilege and joy, but also the responsibility to teach and admonish one another in the truth of God's word. What does that mean? The application point here is longing for truth. Longing for truth. Do you long for truth in your own life, and then do you long for the truth to be known by those around you, by those that you love? Our goal needs to be the same as Paul in desiring to present every man perfect, complete, mature in Christ. And we are to accomplish it by that same means of teaching and admonishing based on the word of Christ, which we have seen is to dwell in us richly. In that way, we share with others the supremacy of Christ that we have received from having the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And that brings us to our third point. So first, we've seen the supremacy of the indwelling word of Christ. Secondly, we we've seen the sufficiency of the indwelling word. And finally, as we understand those things, we see the symphony that comes from the indwelling word. I made it. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Here's what I love about this as I've studied through this. And if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul is saying here, Paul is t- communicating that teaching and admonishing takes place through Singing. Teaching and admonishing takes place through singing. Huh, is that good news or what, right? My job, whew, all right, I have a job tomorrow. No, uh, I'm going to need, I, I'm finding, I'm going to need to teach Daniel, Pastor Daniel, how to sing, and maybe Ben and Kent will all get up here on a Sunday and we'll just, we'll just sing as we admonish and, and teach. Wouldn't that be glorious, maybe? So it's, it's obvious that admonishing and teaching are parts of, of the preaching of God's word Second Timothy two, Paul admonishes or instructs Timothy to preach the word, to be ready in season, out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. So I'm not saying that, that the preaching of the word only should come through singing, but what I am saying is it should come through singing as well. Through singing psalms and hymns. And spiritual songs. A quick study on the word singing in this context, even God's word. I found variations of the word sing in the Bible have revealed that there are more than 500 favorable references to singing in the Bible. 50 of them are direct commands to sing to God, including this one that I love, Psalm 47, 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. What do you think the command there is? Anybody? Anybody? That's right. We are to sing praise to God. Obviously, God is not only concerned that we praise Him, but even that we sing our praises to Him. The longest book of the Bible is not primarily a book of history, a book of teaching or a book of prophecy, but it is a book of of poems that have been set to music. In fact, after Israel's deliverance from Egypt, Moses doesn't give an eloquent speech, but rather he sings a song. In Exodus 15, we could find that first song of worship that is recorded in Scripture. Later on, David assigns Levite musicians to sing God's praises day and night at the temple as part of temple worship. First Chronicles 9, you can read about that. This is all part of God's original design for creation to surround his presence with singing. In the New Testament, there are more than 20 references to music and almost all of them have to do with Singing. We see Jesus and the disciples, they sing after their Passover meal together. In Acts 16, we read about Paul and Silas having been bound in prison, beaten, and stripped. Nevertheless, what are they doing? They're praying and singing to God while all the other prisoners listen. Singing was obviously more than just a legalistic, lifeless duty for them. It wasn't the sideshow. It wasn't the time filler, it was the teaching and admonishing the instruction of the word of Christ. In the book of Revelation, John treats us to an unimaginable picture of the continuous singing that takes place around the throne. A song with power, such beauty that it is eventually taken up by all of creation. So we see that the Bible is filled with praise that is being sung to God. Just talking about saying it makes me need a drink of water. So now we're going to get to the good part and and look at psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. This is what you've been waiting for. We're going to break that down. What do those terms mean in God's word? And and, uh, I would just say first off that I, I have not, Come to a conclusion on this, but here's what I have come up with: Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Psalms refer primarily to the Old Testament psalms that have been put to music. It's also the term that is used of a vocal music of any type that is accompanied by a stringed instrument. We've already seen that Psalms has a wide variety of specific subjects: prayer, praise, sorrow. But primarily they are focused on God, his character, his work, and even petitions to him. Many of the psalms, as well as other scriptures, have been set to music in modern times as well. Psalm 62, we've sung that here. My soul finds rest in God alone, my rock and my salvation. Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. We've sung that song as well. Many songs, other songs that we sing, declare portions of Psalm. God, my rock this morning from Psalm 73, Psalm 18, portions of that. Oh, our Lord, that we sang this morning, Psalm 8-1. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Also, it talks of hymns. Hymns are those songs that center more on praise, and they differ from the Psalms only in that they specifically praise. The Lord Jesus Christ. Many scholars believe that certain passages, such as Colossians 1 12 to 16, which we read, were used in this manner. A hymn would include songs today, such as In Christ Alone, Before the Throne of God Above, and Can It Be? Perhaps this morning, uh, the opening song that we sang, Come Praise and Glorify, right from Ephesians 1 could be another modern-day hymn based on this. Thirdly, psalms, hymns, we have spiritual songs. Spiritual songs are probably those songs of testimony that covered a broad category of any music that expresses spiritual truth. It would include many of our modern songs of worship, such as, or including, You Alone Can Rescue, Behold Our God that we'll sing later on, You, You Are God, My Jesus, I love thee. Maybe you could think of more. So after all my my study and research and trying to figure out what exactly these terms mean and, and what conclusion can I come to for you to satisfy your desire to know, the conclusion I've come to is this, that I don't know exactly what Paul meant by these terms. But what I do know, or what the point is I'd like to make that I can see from this, is that God... God loves diversity in our worship, not simply for the sake of including everyone, but rather so that we might understand and experience the truth in a more profound way. We see this reflected in Scripture in so many ways, where God is worshipped in a variety of ways. One commentator said it this way as he as he commented on this passage or this verse. He said, First century worship included traditional as well as contemporary materials. It included highly cognitive as well as more emotional forms. Carefully crafted as well as improvised compositions. Psalms of praise and prayer. Hymns of doctrine and spiritual songs of Christian experience. My prayer is that our songs would contain those things as well. Songs that bring about a, a diversity of including psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, because I believe that God is most glorified in that. The final phrase of this verse says, we are to sing with thankfulness or grace in our hearts to God. The word, their thankfulness, translated, is, can be uh, inter, interchanged with thankfulness or grace. When the word of Christ dwells richly within you, There will be a proper response of worship to God for all that he has done. There will be an emotional response of of joy that will come as the word of Christ dwells in you richly. What does that mean? It means, the application point there, it means that we are to be living out the truth. The word of Christ is to dwell us in such a way that we can't help but live it out, and maybe even sing about it. Believers are are a singing people. We could see that from the New Testament church and even from the Old Testament. We were created to sing God's praises, and that's a good thing. Psalm 135, verse 3 says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praise to his name, for that is pleasant. God created us. God created the universe and he keeps it in order. He protects our lives. He has given us families. He guides our paths perfectly. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows everything about us. But the most precious truth is this. All of our sins have been forgiven. Although if you're like me you have sinned against your family. Perhaps you've spoken harshly to your your spouse, your children. You've envied, you've coveted. You've lived much of your life for yourself instead of God. Despite all of those things, God sent Jesus Christ, his son, to take the punishment for your sin. He became sin. Jesus Christ became sin so that we can be clothed perfectly in his righteousness. Jesus Christ, he came into the world to save sinners. That's me, that's you. We have become God's children, and that is something that should cause us to sing, give us something to sing about. And singing helps us do that in such a way that it brings glory to him. You see, we sing not for our own glory, we don't sing songs for our own pleasure, even for our own preferences, but rather we sing for the pleasure of the one who gave us a song in the first place. as the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, we recognize that it is supreme in our lives, as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom we realize the sufficiency of the word of Christ that dwells within us. And as we sing to each other and to ourselves psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to the Lord, we are rejoicing because of the symphony of praise that exists in our lives as believers and followers of Christ. Why? Because we have been forgiven of much And we have been given a new life that exists in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I I love you. And I thank you so much for for offering forgiveness to me for my sins. Father, I I do not deserve your grace or your love or, or your righteousness that is offered through your Son. And yet, out of your great love, for us out of your never-ending grace and, and mercy, you offer that to us. And so, Father, we offer, we offer our praise to you this morning. Not knowing, Father, I don't know what's going on in the lives of, of people this morning, but you do. And regardless, regardless of what we face today, regardless of what we'll experience tomorrow, we know, without a doubt, we know that we are forgiven. That we stand clothed in your righteousness. And that gives us reason to sing. How can we do anything but offer our lives as praise to you? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.